You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Aishat Akanbi. Um, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, well, pretty much. The T is silent, so it's Aisha Akambi, but you have my, my surname completely correct. Oh, but right, yeah. I, Aisha. Um, yes, I wasn't, because we have met in person, um, so I have actually also heard your name in person, um, but my memory is a little bit faded. So I was listening to Alan de, Bot- de Botton pronounce it, and that's what he said. Mm. Um, and you didn't correct him, so <laughs> I thought, this must be close. But it's a little hard to tell from just listening on, on YouTube. And um, Aisha is a designer um, and a writer. And I would like to, and you've also become a, a kind of cultural commentator, a spokesperson, I would say, for universal humanist values and someone who tends to uh, philosophize and talk about things at a, at a more abstract level and to kind of place the the debates of the culture wars in in this much more wider and universalizing framework about human psychology and interaction do you, do you feel that's a fair summary of of your of your of your approach, your stance? Yes, I, I do actually. I, I think it's, you know, some people often ask me, you know, what is it that you do or how do you describe yourself? And I never know, but I might just be borrowing exactly that. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that that is um, what I stand for. I think it's hard for me sometimes to name it or describe it because I feel like I'm just led by my intuition and I'm led by fairness, you know, and I I wouldn't necessarily say that I am, I don't know, as much of an intellectual, if you like, as I am just someone who just thinks based on, I don't know, I, I just, I just think, you know, and I haven't ever really, you know, I'm not, trained in any of the things that I, I talk about out loud. Um, it doesn't necessarily come from books. Of course I read, but it, it's not versed in any theory. So often a lot of people um, tell me, oh, that sounds like this. And it sounds like you're coming from this place. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So yeah, let's, let's go with that, Iona. <laughs> um, universal humanist values. Yeah, that's what I uh, am definitely uh, wanting to defend. How did you first, so how did you first become a kind of commentator and a public figure? What's the connection between your professional life as a, as a fashion stylist, a photo shoot stylist, and, um, and, and this work as a cultural commentator? How, how did that, how did that happen? And are there links that you see between how you approach, uh, fashion and how you approach, 
uh, political culture? I got into styling uh, in my early 20s. I think I was maybe uh, 21 at the time. And I was very interested in more than fashion, let's say. I was interested in style. I was interested in why people choose what they choose to wear. You know, what do we want it to say about us? What are we communicating? And why are we communicating those things? And when we do communicate those things, what happens? You know, do they open doors? Do they close doors? I was just very interested in the psychology of what we wear. Um, I may not have been able to put it in those terms then, but that was um, very much what it was. And now I think I'm very much led also when it comes to our socio-political situation, I am very much interested in why do we believe the things that we do and why do we behave in the way that we do? Um, what is it? What are we communicating and why? It's, it's the same questions I, I'm interested in. But I guess instead of style now or fashion, I'm interested in people's ideas. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is the link. How did people? How did you come to people's notice uh, as as a as a cultural commentator? Mm, I think I had a situation happen in two thousand and twelve. Uh, I'll be quite frank. Uh, my brother was murdered in two thousand and twelve, and it completely changed uh, my emotional and mental landscape, if you like, almost instinctively and I just started thinking of different things I think it really shocked me on a really profound level and really made me aware of the or hyper aware should I say of the fragility of existence and, and life and I just started talking about different things I think when I became hyper aware of how impermanent everything is it created an urgency in me, an urgency in me to um, want to understand more about myself and understand more about other people. And so I I, um, I started talking on the internet. All of a sudden, I felt compelled to speak out loud. And before that point, I was quite a reserved character, very quiet, very shy. I still am in, in most respects. Um, but I really wanted to say things. All of a sudden, I kind of had things to say almost from nowhere, it felt like. And so I started tweeting, um, you know, I, I mean, in fact, in fact, I started on Facebook and a lot of the people that were on my Facebook were people from uh, school, uh, my secondary school, and they were from uh, a small city in Southampton where I was raised and they couldn't necessarily understand where I was coming from and they seemed to take what I was saying as quite antagonistic. Um, and I eventually moved to Twitter and I think at that point, a lot of the things that I was saying were things that maybe people would regard as spiritual, um, a little bit more um, distinctly, I guess. And from then on, it, it just it just evolved into whatever it is now. And, you know, I was then invited to start speaking on things. I mean, I was just as shocked, um, you know, that anyone might call me a cultural commentator, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, I was shocked by that. I just, again, I, I just think I'm I'm led by what appears to me to seem constructive. Tell me about your worldview before your your brother's death, and um, 
Uh, yes, tell me more details. Uh, tell me about some of the things that you uh, you believed and and why you believed them, and how that changed. Maybe one or two of the most important aspects. It feels like often, you know, when you go through this, say, breakdown slash awakening thing, um, it feels like often you find yourself. But what I really think is is that you remember, you know, yourself, and and I think. In my case, I, I see that to be true. So I think a lot of the things that I held, I, I believe now or, or see now quite clearly, they were, there were always hints of that before, but they were buried under maybe shyness or um, am I allowed to think this way? Or maybe some self-shame because I don't think anybody else around me felt the ways that I did. So I just innately believed that they were wrong and, and just didn't really interrogate a lot of um, my previous beliefs. But I think the main thing before my brother passed is I didn't necessarily think about the word purpose or intentionality very much, you know, or what it may mean to live a so-called good life or a life that you can stand by. You know, those questions weren't necessarily as important to me um, and they became very important to me after my my brother passed away um, I think I was very I was I was this I, I was a very similar person I, I think now I can see that at one stage I would have said you know I'm completely different you know I always believed in fairness you know I never it never you know just even when I think about just you know in school when people would pick on someone for something I don't know, maybe the popular kids thought someone was strange or someone was unattractive. It never appeared to me to to join in. I, I, yeah, it, there was always something just inherently uncomfortable about that to me. But I, 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 you know, I've only just told you one thing, but I think right now I can only think that, yeah, the words purpose, intentionality and, you know, Living a life that, you know, I can stand by, uh, integrity, that word, you know, suddenly became a lot more important to me after my brother passed mm. away. And why was it that your your Facebook friends felt that what you were saying was, um, how did you put it, confrontational or hostile? Um, well, to be fair, you know, when I think about it now, in some ways it might have been. So back then I also kind of took a more... Uh, a more keen interest in race. So this was, let's say, 2012, 2013. And I was saying things uh, about race um, that probably were, if I'm honest, um, because before I got to the place that I'm in now, where there's a lot more stillness, I would say, uh, there was some erraticness in this process. I, um, as much as I kind of, you know, wanted to live a life that was purposeful in the beginning of this, you know, transformation, if you like, it was very distressing. Um, it was scary, I guess. Yeah. In, in many ways, um, and confusing. And I think I could be self-righteous in the things that I thought about race, you know, I, I very much maybe, and it was race that was maybe one of the, the biggest 
contentious things uh, that I was talking about on Facebook, uh, you know, about racism and things like this. And I, I think I was, it wasn't necessarily an ill-informedness as much as it was um, less humanistic uh, than I would approach matters of race today. And, you know, I went to a predominantly white school. And so I think me talking about instances of racism uh, to my school friends who, you know, were all white pretty much and who I'd always had good relationships and friendships with, you know, I thought, I think they thought I was attacking them. And I wasn't, I was never necessarily the kind of person to make blanket statements about white people. Because again, I, I've always worked on a, on a, a basis of fairness. And I know that if I wouldn't be okay or comfortable with people making blanket statements about black people, then it never struck me as wise to do that. But I still think my friends at the time, and I don't think I had the best approach. They might have had a point, in fact. I don't think my approach was um, the most considered. Mm, mm. So how has that changed? What's changed about your, um, your um, what has changed in your attitudes towards race and racism? Um, how, how has that matured over the, since, since then? Or how has your approach changed? Well, I think... You know, I've actually never, yeah, this might be the first time I'm even answering that question to myself. For one, I just think I understood that things are a lot more complicated and, and complex than we um, we allow for. You know, I think sometimes when we are in pain or hurting, I, I think we take, we start seeing people in the way that we are rather than they are. Um, and I don't think that's conscious. I don't think we always know that we're doing that. And I recognize to some degree that we all... What What do you mean by that? Sorry, um, I, I'm a little... Can you give me an example? Well, let's say if we are unforgiving of ourselves for our mistakes, um, for some of our flaws and... Um, some of our maybe previous thoughts, we tend to be that way with other people. Or if we don't necessarily have a very comprehensive understanding of ourselves, if we only see ourselves as quite one-dimensional, we often project that onto other people. You know, if we dislike ourselves predominantly, it's much easier to dislike other people. And, and so, and if we feel attacked, internally for whatever reason i think we again we um we see that people who may be making very innocuous statements as attacking us as long as it doesn't suit our worldview or i or our, our ideas of things so that's what i mean that we, we tend to see people uh the way we are rather than the way they are right yes yes i understand i think that you in in um in one of your talks that I've heard, I think it was on the um, Trigonometry podcast, um, you you talked about a difference between oppression and prejudice. Can you outline more about that? Oh, so that was the, the difference between um, oppression and discrimination, I think is what I said. Um, and so, yes, I think that, you know, living in any sort of, um, any sort of society, actually, I was going to say a multicultural society, but I actually think it's any society. Um, because humans are quite um, 
fearful often of things that are unfamiliar. Um, this often leads people to treat uh, others who they find threatening because of their differences uh, with some form of discrimination. So that can be anything from maybe being overweight or maybe being what some people perceive to be unattractive or your sexuality, your religious beliefs, um, all kinds of things, you know, that are a different or unfamiliar to people. And that is discrimination. And I think most people have experienced some form of this. Um, but oppression to me feels like a very different thing. Oppression to me is something much heavier. Um, it's something where maybe our lives are at risk, I perceive that as. I, I wouldn't necessarily say the discrimination that I've faced in my life is oppressive. Um, I, I don't feel, not even I don't feel, my life isn't at risk by other people or no more so than the average person. Um, and to be oppressed in my understanding of that word um, would mean that you risk your life to maybe say things out loud, to be who you are truly. Um, it feels like um, a much heavier form of subjugation. And I think discrimination is fear of difference. Oppression is maybe the um, suppression of difference or of individuality. Um, and I think that discrimination is something that is a little bit more universal uh, that many people can feel so long as they do not correspond to whatever our so-called norms are, you know, and, and norms change around the world. So, you know, yeah, whatever the norm is not, uh, people are likely to face some form of discrimination. And that can be based on your race, that can be based on your um, your weight, uh, uh, your sexuality, all kinds of things, your, your, your level of perceived attractiveness, you know. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true. I mean, surely we've all we've all experienced that kind of um discrimination that feels like it's uh it's about um that there one is a one is about negative things, things uh, um bad things being done to you if I oversimplify this and the other thing is about not being able to obtain good things is that is that is that a good distinction between them i think that is yeah i think that's a, a really useful succinct way of thinking about it yes so oppression is like an aggression towards you preventing you from leading your life in a normal way having normal freedoms and um and uh, achieving some normal level of prosperity of of uh, of ability to live your to to flourish and discrimination is about barring you or consciously or unconsciously from certain desirable more de more des a more desirable level of flourishing like a better job or a higher position or um things of things of that nature is that is that correct Yes. Yeah, I think so. And that can be based on lots of things, you know, again, like it can be even in retail, let's say with like fashion retail in particular, um, irrespective of your race, um, they want a certain look of a certain type of person, you know, 
And that would be, you know, a, a form of, of discrimination, you could say. Um, and yeah, so it's like that, but it doesn't mean that you are completely prevented from being able to um, attain a desirable job. It just means that there are areas where, you know, yeah, discrimination can prevent you from achieving something. It feels to me as though um, the tricky thing here is that discrimination is about is about choices um, that people are making. Um, people are also corporations or industries, etc., which are also, of course, built made up of people. Although there's the added complication that if you're um, if you're if if you're um, have have a person of authority within a corporation or you have a fashion company or you're doing a fashion shoot, let's say, since this is an industry that the industry that you work in, your choices are also influenced by what you think other people's preferences will be. You're trying to second guess what people will want to see, will will click on, will buy, will find attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what um, I mean, one of the things that makes this debate so tricky is that we want to allow people to make free choices, mm-hmm. but we also may not like some of the choices that they make. Yeah. And uh, it's it's hard to know where to uh, where to draw the line in those in those cases. Um, I think that this this was fundamentally what that. Uh, what that famous case of of the bakers who refused to make a wedding cake for a gay couple in mm-hmm. the states who are sued um that case really outlined many of those things for me because that was clearly not oppression mm-hmm. um they weren't stopping them from getting married or even having a cake um but it was very clearly discrimination quite yes. explicitly discrimination and um, and so the question was, to what extent should you be allowed to make your own free choices? Because your choices obviously can also impact on other people and restrict those other people's freedoms. Um, mm. So that I, I think that that is a um, that's kind of a question that I don't know how we will yeah how we will solve. Yes, I mean. I don't know. I don't know if it takes maybe people really, truly having to accept that, you know, we're all perceiving this world in different ways. We have different values. And so long as, so long as uh, we are not going out of our way to harm people, you know, and although that's even tricky to say because, you know, what someone registers as harm another person will not but i i don't know the baker uh, the baker situation was um a tricky one i mean the bakery situation was a tricky one and it's a it's a useful one to bring up i i personally you know do not uh i wouldn't i wouldn't personally if i was in that situation i'd be actually quite happy to know um who not to give my money to <laughs> you know i would be quite happy to be told directly okay you do not agree or you are not, yeah, you don't agree with the the way I choose to love, 
that's okay. You're entitled to that. You know, you're not entitled to obstruct me from, you know, getting married or, you know, going somewhere else. Um, I think I, I personally quite like to know where people stand. Um, and I wouldn't want people, per, and this is, I can only, I guess, speak for myself. I wouldn't want people to compromise what they believe is right for my comfort. Mm, mm. That's that's really interesting. I think that it's part of it depends on how many other options you have, in a sense. Yes. So yes, um, a lot of people are using the um, uh, the parallel with the pre Civil War with the Jim Crow laws and um, uh, black people being banned from lunch counters, for example, um, and that. I mean, in a sense, nobody is stopping you from eating your lunch. It's not a kind of basic necessity to be at a lunch counter. Um, but that feels um, that feels discriminatory. I guess it's an extreme form of discrimination. Um, and that kind of gave me gave me some pause um, in regard to the to the bakers. Um, Although the situations are not exactly analogous because they were not saying we will not allow um, gay people to shop at our bakery. They were just refusing to sell this specific wedding cake, if I understood correctly. I think that's what happened, yeah. So it's a, it's a little bit difficult, but it's a little bit different. But none of these analogies are perfect. That's, that's the problem. Whenever we use analogies... Um, we kind of hope that the analogy will create this watertight argument, um, but it it never does because each situation is individual. Um, and so I think that uh, there's it's it I often hope that it's going to give me the guideline. So like I found the perfect analogy and so now I know how I should think and feel about this. Um, but unfortunately, it rarely, <laughs> rarely seems to help as much as I hope it will help. So that analogy still left me kind of slightly, slightly baffled. Do you have any suggestions as to how we, um, how we should approach this this problem of um, allowing people maximum freedom in their beliefs? Um, and choices, and also not allowing those those beliefs and choices to cause uh, suffering to other people. Mm. And so that's a good question uh, because it's a, a difficult question. <laughs> um, I think maybe it's in the way that we perceive um, these different. Uh, choices and these different freedoms that people want to exercise i think if we if we look at every instance of someone who who let's say uh disagrees fundamentally with um a part of the way that we live i think if we perceive that to be about us rather than them it particularly feels injurious, you know, emotionally and mentally. But I think if we are to begin to understand this as, no, this is a reflection of how someone else is. It doesn't have, it doesn't have to be diminishing or demeaning to you. This might be, I, I personally perceive these things to be 
um, reflections of the limits of someone's compassion or someone's open-mindedness. Um, and that's something that, let's say, um, and, you know, this might be patronizing, but it's something that makes me um, edge more towards pity than anger, you know, um, because I don't think, I don't think a lot of these things um, take away from someone to, to, to be more open to someone else's uh, way of life. Um, I don't think generally has to take anything from you. Um, and so I think if we, yeah, if we don't take things as personally, I mean, that's very hard to do, I think. Uh, and I think the only reason why I might be able to, to practice that uh, sometimes, and maybe not all the time, I, I'm sure I too slip up, you know, I'm human, of course, um, but I try to practice uh, unattachment. You know, I try not to put myself in the center of other people's realities, you know. Mm. I think that's a, a really, that you've put your finger on something that that um, bothers me in, intuitively, which is, um, people who, um, the kind of rhetoric that I hear a lot nowadays, which is about negating somebody's identity or de um, denying their, erasing them. I think that's the, that's the most common phraseology. You are erasing me. And I realize that this has been, uh, there's a, there's a famous historical example of this actually, and it's at, it's at the end of the novel, The Well of Loneliness. Um, this, um, uh, for those, for readers who may not know, um, I'm looking, I'm looking up the quotation. It's, it, uh, so it's a, it's um, published in the 1920s. I think it was 27 or uh, 1928 um, by Jonathan Cape. It's a, it is the first, I think, explicit depiction of a lesbian, a serious lesbian relationship within a novel. And um, it was uh, banned for, um, for obscenity. Um, and all the copies were, were pulped. There was quite a famous, a lot of uh, famous people defended the book at the time. It was rather similar to the Lady Chatley's Lover Trial, except that there's absolutely, if you go to this book hoping to find obscenity, you're going to be extremely disappointed. I think the most risky moment is when uh, the two main characters, the main female characters, have been uh, having an evening together, and I think they are on a walk and they've been discussing things. And then the author just says the words, and that night they were not parted. That's that's the closest mm -hmm. you get. But wow. um, so I'm <laughs> I'm digressing a little bit. Um, I want to find the very end because oh yes, so it ends with um, the the. Um, the last words. So at the end of the novel, I, I apologize, it's going to be spoilers right now. Um, but the main character kills herself at the end of the novel. Um, and she, she, it ends with these words. She says, give us also the right to our existence. And um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's quite a, uh, it's quite a powerful um, book. And the, um, 
and and uh, in the novel, I'm not being critical of Radcliffe Hall herself uh, or of this novel, but the this kind of idea that another person's opinion could somehow erase or invalidate your existence seems very strange to me. Um, it's as you say, it's about them, their narrow-mindedness or prejudice or. Uh, the upbringing that they have had or their religious beliefs or whatever it is, um, it's their usually sincerely held but but wrong opinion. But it's nothing to it's it's nothing to do with you. Um, you can't erase a person's existence that easily. Um, of course yeah. Yeah, I don't Yeah, go yeah, ahead. Sorry. No, <laughs> so yeah. Um, yes, I, I find this language to be really interesting and revealing, you know, and I think some of the, at the core of a lot of people's, um, let's say, um, I don't know, just, um, there's a base level where everybody just wants to matter. You know, I think that's what it is. Everybody wants to matter. And I think the fear is when people use language like erasure is that they believe that maybe the people who they perceive to be important will believe this person's narrative over their own. I think it's the, I think these people who use language like erasure um, have the inability to recognize um or to trust in people's ability to understand multiple perspectives, you know? And, and so I think they believe that only one, only one perspective or one narrative can exist and anything else is a threat um, to what I am saying. Um, I don't think these people believe that in plurality, you might say, in plurality of ideas. Um, and that's also because maybe they don't, you know? You know, because a lot of people, I notice, you know, when I tell people that I'm not oppressed, um, there are some people who tell me that can't be true. You know, there are some people who tell me I only believe that out of some ignorance or maybe some denial or, I don't know, maybe some um, just, you know, delusion of some sort. And I think they believe that because if I'm not oppressed then I think they perceive that as I'm saying that you, you know, you're not either. And I mean, I, I'm at this point now where I, however people feel, if they say that's how they feel, like go for it. It's just not who I am. I'm not going to tell you, you don't feel that way. Um, I know how I see things. I know how I perceive the world. Um, and so, yeah, I think they think it's a threat to their own worldviews or their own, um, their own, um, perceptions of things i think that the the problem is um so sometimes there are very clear instances of um legal oppression or discriminate or maybe we should call it oppression rather than discrimination because then it's not about individual choices but baked into the system um and um it's very easy to oppose those things so for example um, before um, same-sex marriage or marriage equality, as I always prefer to call it, uh, became a became a thing. Um, it was a very it was a very easy cause. 
Um, it's not possible to get married. It's you know it's not possible for for a same sex couple to get married. It should be possible for them to get married. As a friend of mine put it, let them suffer like the rest of us. <laughs> Why yeah, should exactly they be that. exempt? Really... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly um, that. And but it's much harder when people are talking at the level of discrimination. So I'm finding this. The more I'm thinking about this, this the more useful I'm finding this distinction that you make, um, because there we're talking about narratives and attempting to spot a pattern, and we are. I mean, it is a feature of our brains that we look for patterns, um, and it's also uh, it's also a feature of our brains that negative experiences stick with us much more much more clearly than positive experiences. So uh, um, it becomes very difficult for me to know when somebody is telling stories of discrimination, how typical those things are. And I just, like everybody else, I have a kind of threshold at which I say, okay, I've heard enough of these stories and maybe I've also witnessed or experienced it myself. Um, I have really not experienced much discrimination, I would say, um, at all. Um, I've been very um, fortunate in that regard, but occasionally I have. So let's say I have witnessed secondhand or um, I have heard a lot of stories from someone I find a very reliable source. Um, There comes a threshold point at which I think, okay, this is correct. So, for example, people tell me in Indian Indian friends tell me that people are prejudiced against Indians with darker skin. Um, that there is what they're calling what they call colorism because um, these are people of the same quote unquote race, um, if one believes in that in that term at all. But even people of the, with from within the same family can have different shades of brown skin. In India, so you could be prejudiced against the the daughter who has the darker skin over the daughter who has the fairer skin. Um, there's no way those two people are different races. So um, enough people have told me those stories, and I've seen enough other indications that I think yes, this is very still very prevalent. But with other types of discrimination, I'm never sure. How typical is this anecdote? Um, how much is it? Um, sometimes it seems like it's mind reading and oversensitivity. And sometimes I think, well, how typical was that experience? Um, and very often it sounds, some people like to go for the, I mean, one of the problems is people like to give you the most extreme example so that you don't, there's no ambiguity. Um, they want to give you the example of the angry person shouting the N-word at them or throwing things or whatever. Um, and I'm sure that some of these examples are true, and I'm also sure that some of them are not true. And I just don't know how to evaluate a statement like, for example, the UK is a, is a very racist country. I don't, I, I just don't, I, I just don't know how to categorize and, and qualify that. That's one of the, the problems for me, 
that I, I don't want to um, tell anybody that their, their experience or their anecdote they're telling me is a lie. But I'm also quite skeptical about what people tell me. So I don't know where to, where, how much credence to, I, I'm never sure. And I'm using race as just one example, but can be, could be discrimination on any grounds, um, on grounds of sex, looks, weight. Um, I find it very hard to, to quantify and to know, well, I'm sure discrimination, I'm sure that discrimination exists, how how prevalent is it? Yes, um, I, I agree with you. I understand. Um, and what I've tried to spend some time doing is thinking about why two people who, let's say, live in the same area are, are both, um, you know, so-called minorities, because I know that word isn't isn't something that everybody's comfortable with, but let's we, we use the language that we have available to us. Um, why they, you know, one person is saying, you know, Britain isn't a racist country. And another person is saying that, you know, Britain is a terribly, overwhelmingly racist country. Um, and I think it has something to do with what you uh, mentioned, which I think is, is it negativity bias it's called, you know, and how we are um, more likely to, um, you know, the, the, the bad experiences we have stand out more. Um, and I think there's definitely something to that. Um, and also, again, it's, um, it's how we perceive negative experience. So I've been thinking about this maybe over the last two weeks. It's like, so if someone was to call me the N-word, so when I was in university, there was a car that used to drive around in Kingston. I went to Kingston University and I was living in Surbiton. Um, and so, you know, it, it's quite suburban, white, but there was a lot of um, minority students or from lots of different types of places um, or backgrounds, should I say. And there was a car that used to drive around and it used to shout out the N-word. Well, everyone, everyone's got to have a hobby. <laughs> right, you know? And so, like, this happened to me maybe about mm, four to five times. And each time it happened, I mean, it was quite shocking, but it was also kind of like, well, this person's quite clearly an idiot, <laughs> you know? But then some people will perceive that situation as this is confirmation of my, my mm, low mm. status in this country. This is confirmation of my inferiority in the minds of these people, you know, where I don't personally perceive it that way. I perceive it as a reflection of someone's idiocy and someone else perceives it as, you know, a reflection of their inferiority. Um, and so, again, I think a lot of things uh, when it comes to things like this is about temperament, is about people's emotional and mental temperaments. And I think it's, Again, I don't know if this is maybe to do with self-esteem, you know, because I think if you have high self-esteem or maybe, and, and it's strange because I actually am not someone who necessarily believes that I have, you know, healthy self-esteem, you know, on the best of days. Um, but, or, and, you know, so maybe it's self-worth. Maybe the word I'm thinking of is self-worth potentially, or maybe it's integrity, or maybe it's this thing called unattachment. Uh, and so let's, I'm going to go with unattachment the for Buddhist now. The concept. Yes. Um, and so when you are unattached from a situation, I, which I, I practice, you know, it's something that I find helpful in my own life. Um, you don't look at it from, I don't know, you're not, it's, 
you're not looking it for, you're not looking it looking at it from um you're trying to maybe see it from there i don't know i i think i'm i'm losing myself a little bit here but i think the way that we perceive those two incidents or the incident of let's say someone shouting the n word out is is based on how we think of ourselves you know i don't think of myself as inferior so no one so no one can convince me that i am you know but if you have maybe internalized you know some notion that you are um inferior because of your sexuality your race uh, your gender uh, your class um then i i think you're much more likely to perceive these situations happening a lot more couldn't it be the case though, that you don't perceive yourself as inferior at all but you feel that others undervalue you yes yes you could so um but because a lot of very arrogant people, for example, to, to take a, I mean, this has now has nothing to do with discrimination, but a lot of very arrogant people um, feel undervalued. And I, I don't actually buy the, the, the theory. I think it's just a, a hypothesis, mm-hmm. the psychological hypothesis that, that that is because of their internal insecurities or secret low opinion of themselves that they have. I think that there really are people who have a very robust ego and strong opinion of themselves who feel that they are undervalued. And I actually, I kind of empathize with this because um, I I feel that my writing is undervalued. You know, I genuinely feel that I'm, I'm a very good writer, but I'm uh, not enough people agree and they ought to. Uh, so <laughs> in that sense, I have an inner I, 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 I agree that you are it. definitely a very good writer. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I, I clearly also want, I clearly also want validation and money. Give me money. But um, I clearly also want other people's validation. But I think that, um, I think that you could, I could certainly, for example, feel that um, people are undervaluing me because I'm a woman, for example, um and um i mean i'm also i'm also mixed race and i'm a parsi etc but that's not vis- that's not easily visible to people so most people when they see me read me as just um british but i could think that i was undervalued for for those reasons as well let's say um and um but nevertheless that, that undervaluation Yes, it's an undervaluation. It's not a reflection of my worth. It's not that I think I'm inferior. It's that people are dumb. Mm-hmm. Yes. And yeah, exactly that. And I think we have to accept that people are dumb, you know, and I, I don't know if we often can, um, or at least that we, we maybe we could think about it as, you know, people are at very different levels of consciousness, potentially. Um and let's say the thing is, I think for me, it's like as long as uh, because, you know, I could feel very undervalued in, in many ways, too, you know, um, but as long as I allow that uh, belief to guide me, I, I think I'll, I will never find security. And so it's just something I have to give to myself, which doesn't mean that I haven't experienced instances of feeling undervalued or feeling like you know, things like that. I, 
it's just that I, I try not to um, outsource my security to other people. And because if I do that, then I think I'll, I'll permanently feel insecure because no one is, it's, it's very hard for people to treat you the way that you often think you should be treated, you know, because people have their own things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've just, I may, I, I try to make peace with that if I want to have some peace of mind. I think it's very hard to make people value the things that you value. Yes. Um, this is something that I was discussing in a in a recent interview with somebody else. Um, but I, and now I can't remember who I was discussing this with. <laughs> um, but it's uh, you know, for example, um, I would. I think it would be wonderful if more people valued. For example, I'll give you a, a non non personal example. My housemate feels that uh, people should value classical music more. Mm, I and agree he, with him. Yes, me too. Mm. And he is upset that more people aren't supporting the online programming that the Royal Opera House and Covent Garden and those places are are putting on during lockdown because he thinks it's very important that those places stay open um, because they are. Because of of the because live classical music is important, mm-hmm. and um, but of course it's many people don't think live classical music is important and they don't value that, and so um, it, you can try to persuade them, but you're always going to have a limited degree of success because people are going to have their own priorities, mm-hmm. um, and. Far more people are going to, for example, you know, even just taking the minor example of Twitter. Um, so you have a a, um, a following of forty thousand or something like that, um, and um, uh, people who just post pictures of their boobs have a following of one million. Mm-hmm. So people value seeing boobs more than they value hearing a very profound philosophical (laughs) truth. And um, there's a sense in which I want to say they ought to have different priorities. Um, But in another way, why should they? Hmm. Because their liking for boobs is not harming anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, that's That's their free choice. Um, those are their revealed, it might not be their stated preferences, but certainly their revealed preferences. Um, and what is what is wrong with that? And I think that there's a similar thing that happens on a personal level, which is, I feel like the universe should value me. <laughs> but mm-hmm. unfortunately, <laughs> um, uh, many people don't agree, and trying to persuade them otherwise is a constant uphill slog. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I think what I think, Pete, rather than trying to convince people why what you value should be valued more widely, I think it one way to maybe try and change that is to talk about is to maybe um, talk about why this thing that you value is important. You know, rather than trying to convince people, like, you know, really, I think one should, um, I don't know, cultivate a lot of the passion that they have for this topic. And, and you know, rather than, so let's say, rather than telling someone why what they believe is bad, maybe you should think about why what you believe is good. 
you know, and, and make a strong case for that, you know? And so let's say with classical music, that example, you know, we can easily say that like, you know, people should care about classical music more. Um, people should value live classical music more, but why? What do they gain from valuing classical music? What is it about classical music that can be constructive or helpful in one's life? You know, that's a more, that's a question that can make people, or answering that question can make people a little bit more curious, you know. But as long as we just say it, you know, without trying to, um, without trying to talk about some of its value, you know, um, then, yeah, I think we're, we're not going to make much of a strong case. I have a little bit of a problem with this, with, with some of the cases that are made for diversity. Mm -hmm. um, in that, um, I mean, I think that uh, all other things being uh, all other things being equal, diversity is almost always a net good. It's just good mm -hmm. to have a larger range of things. Um, I mean, I'm not even thinking about people now, but just in general, um, I would say diversity is a net good. Um, but um, in specific situations, I always, I always kind of wonder, well, uh, why precisely? So I can see that uh, oppression is bad and discrimination mm -hmm. is also bad, less bad than oppression, but discrimination is also bad because it's preventing people from individuals from flourishing. But when people say things like, there need to be more black and brown people. I think a recent example was going on long countryside hikes. Oh yes, I saw this. This was this was particularly <laughs> insane to me. But yeah, let's 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 go there. Um, so my my question is, why? <laughs> um, yes. Why why do why does why does each area of life need to have an equal representation of people of different races? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a useful question to think about. I mean, we say these things. I think we're in this moment where we just say things. We say these slogans and we don't think about why, you know. And, you know, maybe there isn't, you know, people, uh, black and brown people that say not being in the countryside is not necessarily, in the same way that we don't have a lot of people who are interested widely in classical music, that's not necessarily um, because they are excluded from such things. You know, the average, let's say, the average person probably isn't often taking countryside walks, you know, regardless of whatever skin colour they are. You know, it's a, maybe someone could say it's an acquired taste you know, um, to do such a thing. Maybe some people prefer an urban landscape or or, or something like that, or, or a city kind of, you know what I mean? Mm. I, and so I just, I don't know, why why, why do, I, I think it very much to me reveals, um, reveals a certain type of insecurity. Um, and by insecurity, I don't necessarily mean that in a, in a, in a negative sense. I, you know, we all have insecurities, but if you need to see yourself somewhere to value something, you know, to, to, to appreciate the beauty in something, you know, we go to nature to escape, you know, the countryside is, is where we go to, to find some solace. And so, and I'm going to the countryside 
if I'm going to the countryside, I'm not thinking about how many people look like me here, you know, and, and to have that at the forefront of your mind, uh, I think that's really revealing of um, a certain type of self-importance, you know, and rather than questioning, again, why, you know, there are no black and brown people at the countryside or not enough black and brown people at the countryside. Again, why don't you just talk about, you know, what you value in the countryside and maybe why other people should go to the countryside, um, not just black or brown people, maybe more working class people, maybe more students, you know, maybe the importance of taking your children on, on countryside walks. Um, I don't, I, I, no, I just don't see why that, you know, I agree with you overall. I mean, that might have been a messy way to kind of put it, but I just don't see what the, no, it, it's, uh, I don't believe that there necessarily needs to be um, an equal amount of, uh, let's say, people from minority backgrounds in everything, because I think that negates that we have different cultural values also. And, and preferences, Yes, exactly that. Um, I think that a lot of it might might have to do with socialization, i.e. your social groups. And I think this probably reflects the US much more than it does us. And one of the problems I have with a kind of very recent discourse um, is that there's a lot of, I see a lot of attempts to map a kind of US social landscapes right onto the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, I think that, so for example, people were talking about Indians being a moral minority, uh, model, moral, um, a model, moral minority. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that may make sense in the U S but that makes mm-hmm. absolutely no sense. If you're, if you're thinking of Bangladeshi families in Tower Hamlets, um, exactly that. so uh, you know, there, there are a lot of ways in which um, I think it doesn't map on. What I don't know, I'm not a sociologist and I have no, I really have no statistics for this, but I don't know the extent to which people's friend groups are. I'm going to use the word racially, even though I find that word really problematic. Because uh, I'm kind mm-hmm. of a, it's rather like free will. I'm also a fundamental non-believer in free will, but it's it's a mm-hmm. shorthand that I can't get away from. And for the time being, the same is sort of true of race. <laughs> you know, I'm, um, okay, yes, I understand. Um, I don't really believe in it, but pe- other people do, and so therefore I'm going to have to use this category. But maybe the reason fewer brown and black people are in the countryside is that people's friend circles um, are a little bit um, racially homogeneous um, because of where they yes. live, and that that mm-hmm. means that they tend to share the interests that their friends have and they tend to discover things through their friends. And so therefore they probably have less, fewer friends who are going on countryside hikes. So they're less likely to go on countryside mm-hmm. hikes. And of course that is a self-perpetuating cycle. I'm not sure it's even a vicious cycle though. Um, no, yeah, no, exactly. I think that's a, a really, really good point. Um, and I think it's just too easy, you know, I think... I think to um, to think well, almost. I think you can't always go for the most uh, 
obvious answer, you know, and and that's what people do. I think people go for very obvious or what appears to be an obvious. So if there's a a disparity somewhere, then it has to be because of discrimination because it's easier to think that, you know, rather than, you know, take the extra, the extra mile, the extra mental mile and consider, you know, such factors that you've mentioned, you know, about friendship circles. And, And you're right, like a lot of friendship groups are racially uh, homogeneous in that sense. So, yeah, but I mean, I guess that, you know, what you said is a lot more complicated maybe, and it's not as attractive, you know, and it's, you know, people, I think people want to feel in some sense, you know, and what I'm about to say, maybe some people would see as quite um, uh, contentious or controversial, um, is that I think people want to feel attacked sometimes. People want to feel, because if you feel like you're being let out of, I mean, you're being um, excluded from something or or, or something is... um, built to be unfair towards you, then you have something to fight against. And if you have something to fight against, then you have a purpose. And, you know, I think we live particularly right now in a time because of social media where uh, reputation management is everything and people want to be perceived as good people, you know, more than ever, uh, because the the penalty for not be, being perceived as a good person is, is, is you know, is quite... Um, quite severe as we've seen you know with elements of council culture and and people piling on each other and people's mental health suffering as a consequence of that and so people feel like they have to have a purpose and if you have to have a purpose that is saving other people or this kind of righteous purpose then you have to look for areas where you feel um like you are being excluded when you might not be. Yeah, well, fighting is quite invigorating, isn't it? Uh, um, I mean, I definitely feel that on Twitter. <laughs> I think that, I I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I ask myself, I have a couple of kind of haters on Twitter who occasionally tweet really horrible things about me, and I have blocked both of them, but mm-hmm. I still sometimes open an incognito window and go and look. And I'm like, what impulse mm-hmm. is it that makes me want to do that. Um, I mean, there's no reason that I need to know what they're saying about me. There's absolutely no reason. Well, it's that um, negativity bias, I guess. Well, I think it's also, there's something about, kind maybe. of, um, maybe it's, a, it's just arousal in the sort of wider sense, in the, in the sense in which, um, you know, neurologists use that word. So we use it just to talk about sex, but they use it in this more general sense of any emotion that is kind of got you out of your relaxed state and into a kind of revved up state. Um, so maybe it's just that. Maybe mm. what I'm looking for or what many of us are, are looking for is is kind of arousal. Um, and that's the opposite yes. of this Buddhist non-attachment thing. Um, I studied Buddhism yes. for a year in Sri Lanka um, it wasn't actually wasn't the main reason I was there, but I also studied Buddhism, and I could never get to grips with it because I found it so intensely boring. And many people said to me, "Of course it's boring. That's the point. You know, that's that sort of uh, being bored is a good thing about it. Actually, um, it's letting yeah. go of this need for arousal, but." I, yes. I couldn't. I need my arousal. 
Yeah, I think that's the part of it because I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but I think there's a part of that's the part of Buddhism that I actually find um, quite compelling. And, you know, you say, because I've never necessarily framed um, Buddhism as boring. However, I did recently write a piece about the importance of boredom. So I can clearly see um, where, yeah, the sort of like um, Buddhist inclinations maybe that I have uh, came out in that piece. Um, And I think for me, how I see it is I... I want to make sure that I'm informed by choices rather than compulsion, you know, and because I think when I'm led by my compulsions, like I am, I'm not in control. And there's something about Buddhism to me that strikes me as um, uh, encouraging Mm. being in control Mm. of yourself. Um, and I really quite like that, you know, so something I tried to do on Twitter, um, which is a place mm. where we all lose control to some degree, uh, or it exacerbates our, our lack of self-discipline is I really try never to quote people's tweets with, um, anything that can be, um, negative, you know, I, I try not to do that. And it's very tempting. It's very, in fact, I try not to reply to anyone that I disagree with about anything. Um, because I, what I would try, what I rather do is um, use a point that someone's made about something I disagree with. I, I'd rather use that to inspire an independent thought rather than challenge a stranger that I don't know who owes me nothing. Um, and I, yeah, sorry. As 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 they as they are saying on Twitter, the latest meme, um, you know that little box where you can object to a, a post on on Facebook, and one of the options is I'm in this photo yes. and I don't like it. <laughs> I'm just silently ticking yes, that yes, little yes. box right now. I'm in this photo and I don't like it. <laughs> Please untag, kindly untag me. <laughs> oh, I understand. But, you know, it's it's been a practice. It's been a practice to to get here. Um, and I, I think, well, I don't know if I've ever done it. But also, I guess there's part of my personality that's like this. I'm not, I'm not very confrontational. I don't like confrontation, and there is some issues with that. You know, it, it's not necessarily as as altruistic as that might come across. You know, there's there's issues with you know not liking confrontation. Um. So it could also be coming from that place, and I'm aware of that. Um, but, yeah, I try not to play into that because if I don't want people on Twitter, if I want to have a fairly nice time on a platform that I use, um, then I think I owe it to people to give them a fairly good time, you know, or at least not contribute to their bad time at the very least. Another thing that I wanted to ask you about was um – the role of art. So as well as a social commentator, you are an artist and we haven't really, we haven't really talked very much about that. And I think that I, I guess I'd like to begin with a more personal question, which is what, what your approach is to, to um, being a stylist? Is there a kind, is there a specific vision you have? Is there a particular, um, if somebody asked you what how what characterizes your work as a stylist, what motivates you, what inspires you, um, what affects you enjoy creating, um, what would you say? I hope that's not too open ended. So, in in terms of my styling, um, 
I was always motivated, not just by fashion or just style in the beginning, but I recognized that the way that I was presenting myself, which was a lot more eccentric when I was younger, because I guess there's a greater need to want to stand out. Um, but it really made people regard me in, in quite different ways. You know, people were always willing to speak to me of all kinds, you know, uh, different class backgrounds, different uh, ethnicities, and just people of all types. I found that I was really someone that people seemed drawn to in a certain way. And I wondered if, you know, if I could do that for other people through clothing. And, you know, people just kind of being attracted to me um, just for conversation um, really, I think, helped with confidence, you know, because I was quite a shy, quiet person. And I really wanted to find a way to uh, make people feel good without necessarily having to say anything to them, you know, you know, to do it through clothing. Um, and so I think it's, uh, for me, styling uh, styling clients, uh, like in music and um, other forms of visible work, I think it was about trying to enhance their confidence. And, you know, sometimes we put on an outfit and it really changes the way that we feel about ourselves. Um, and I'm very interested in, in human potential and, and possibility. And so any way that that can be enhanced is something I'm drawn to. Um, and so I think, you know, as far as styling goes, uh, I think it's that. I, I'm, I'm driven by yeah, our human potential and, and maximizing that. Um, and sometimes we can do that when we feel we look good. For, for you know for better or worse mm. so how how did you used to dress i f i feel you are still quite quirky in your in your dress sense so i'm i'm really intrigued by how you used to how you used to dress if it was even quirkier <laughs> oh yeah it, it definitely was i think it was a bit of a a, a mismatch of, of many things i was very uh colorful i'm a lot more muted in my colors now. But at that point, I was very colorful in the things that I used to wear. Um, I My hair was different. This was before I had locks. And so it was, um, I had relaxed hair and, you know, parts of it were like dyed blonde and, and things like that. Um, and it was very, I very much looked like a cartoon character. Yeah, I was very much like a character that you would see in some kind of anime. Um, whereas now as I've got older, I personally think that, um, older people as opposed to young people tend to have better style. And I don't mean people my age, I, I'm 31. Uh, but I always, for me, I always think, you know, the, the best dressed people at fashion week are people that tend to be over 50. I, I feel that, you know, style gets better with age or it gets, um, a lot less try hard with age. And so, yeah, I might be still quite quirky, but not necessarily as look at me as I used to be. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I, so I'm, um, one thing that has happened to me, I mean, this is not really relevant to anything, but since I was, so when I arrived in India, I thought that it, um, when I went to live in India for a couple of years, um, I came back from India about a year and a half ago now. And I um, 
I wanted to dress in Indian clothes because I didn't want to stand out so much there and I wanted to feel more at home. Um, and I think, I mean, part of that was for reasons of just not not wanting to to run the usual hazards that you run as a tourist um, if you if you really stand out. And then I also felt like I wanted to look more Indian because um, my physical appearance in my physical appearance I don't look very Indian. I can occasionally look I do look more Indian at some times than others um, because I have a very very dark natural hair color. Um, but I also have a lot of gray in my hair, so it's it's that may not be so obvious. And I have a quite pale skin tone, so I wanted to look more Indian because I was there anyway to reconnect with my Indian roots. But since then, I have rarely worn Western clothes again. And I was there for two years, and I came back a year and a half ago. And this, although a lot of my Indian friends. Um, wore Western clothes or wore Western clothes some or all of the time. I think I was almost the only person among my Indian friends who always wore Indian clothes. And I also always ate Indian food when I was in India. Um, I, I mean, unless I was with other people who really didn't want to eat Indian food, but my suggestion was always to eat Indian food. And whenever I had the choice and control I chose Indian um, food. Um, and I just, when I came back, I had to obviously let go of the food, especially since I was living in Argentina. And now I live in a shared house with people and we take it in turns to cook. And I'm still cooking Indian almost all the time. But I'm eating obviously what whatever anyone else cooks. But I haven't been able to let go of the clothes. So I've worn... I've I, I've worn Western clothes. Um, I actually wore them quite a lot in January when I was visiting London, where we met. I think I was wearing Western clothes because I bought I brought almost nothing with me, so I only had a couple of outfits um, because I was storing most of my clothes at my sister's. But uh, with the exception of that time, I think I wore Western clothes maybe twice or three times in a year and a half. And it's, I have, I don't consciously want to do this. I have a lot of very beautiful uh, clothes. I used to be somewhat addicted to clothes buying. Um, and I have a lot of really gorgeous clothes. And I also have a close friend who's a designer. Um, and I, when I was married and therefore more prosperous, I actually bought a lot of her clothes. But I just, I just every time I wake up and I think, I don't feel right in Western clothes. I'm going to put on a kurta again, um, and I I don't know what's going on there. But it has made me think about styling in a in a rather different way. Hmm. Mm. That's interesting. Um. Because you know, as I get older and. I often feel like I want to, you know, my heritage is Nigerian, uh, both my parents. And I went to Nigeria for the first time in 2017. And I really feel that as my style evolves, I would like it to be a lot more traditionally Nigerian. And I'm not sure what that is yet. 
Um, but I can relate to that feeling, you know, although I'm, I'm, I don't actively wear, you know, traditional uh, Yoruba clothing, um, I do want to. Mm, yeah, it, that's, that's, that's so interesting, isn't it? Mm. Um, we're very attached to kind of a sort of trying to make our outward appearance conform to who we are inside. Mm-hmm. It seems to be another way of being, of trying to be recognized. Mm. Mm, definitely. And I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, there's so many elements to this, I think. Um, sorry, go, go ahead. No, I wasn't going to, I was just, I was just agreeing with you. I think it, it is that um, of, of trying to be recognized because as much as I was born in, in Britain, uh, I was born in London, I grew up in Southampton uh, and, and came back to London for university. Um, again, the older I get, I guess it's maybe wanting to connect more with my my heritage and yeah there's something there where I feel like if I was to dress in more um in more Yoruba traditional clothing I feel like it's a bit more of an accurate representation of the things I'm beginning to value more Mm, that's 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 very interesting um what are those what are those things that you're beginning to value I think going to Nigeria was was very um, eye-opening and life-changing for me in many ways. Uh, I went for the first time I, again in 2017. My, my father had always lived in Nigeria and he passed away in 2017 in December. And so I went there for um, his, not necessarily a funeral because he was Muslim. And so, you know, they, they bury you the next day. But let's say we had a memorial for him. And I went and I met my brothers for the first time. I've got some brothers who live in Nigeria and I don't know, it just, I don't know. It it changed a lot of my perceptions about race, maybe in certain ways, in ways that I still find hard to articulate because I often, I went there and in fact, that was the first time I put out, um, uh, an article, you know, it was the first time or not even maybe an article, but just some, 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 uh, elongated prose, you know, like some writing of, uh, that wasn't tweets, you know, and I, I thought about African accents, you know, um, and it was just called notes on African accents and I put it out on Twitter. Um, and it just really changed again. Maybe this is where I started, um, distinguishing between oppression and discrimination, you know, and I was looking at many of the ways that, uh, people are living, you know, millions of people living in Nigeria, um, and it, it felt like, you know, yeah, it felt like what I would deem oppression in many ways. And although I never used the word oppression, because again, I've always been sensitive to language uh, and it felt false for me to use such a word to describe myself. Um, it really made me, um, I don't know, it made me a bit more resistant to um, thinking of the British situation uh, as a form of oppression you know, to me. Um, and so maybe when I say the things I'm beginning to value, I guess I just, I value my culture more, the culture that I was brought up in at home, the, the sort of strictness, um, the, uh, the respect element, um, the, you know, Nigerians are, are very much, at least in my opinion, uh, the, the way that I've grown up, they're not a people considering there is a lot of strife. They're not a people who are, are victims, you know, uh, they're not, even if they have been victimized, you know, they're very proud people. Um, 
and they're very intelligent people, you know, like I met so many people in Nigeria who've never left to speak an English that was intimidating to me. Um, and I don't know, it just, I, there's a sense of pride, sorry, I guess in, in that I've, I've developed in my, yeah, in my cultural heritage. Mm, that's interesting. I feel that cultural, um, one's kind of cultural or ethnic heritage. I often say this actually about being quote unquote mixed race. Um, I don't actually like that mm-hmm. term very much because it implies there is some kind of purity out there to be, to contrast it with. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. I, um, I think that it's, um, it's problematic if it becomes an obligation and one of the problems with racism is it makes it a kind of obligation. You're defi- the person is trying to define you by the way that they see you. Um, so mm-hmm. they are, they have a narrative about what kind of person you are, and they're getting that narrative just from what they judge by looking um, from this kind of superficial, mm-hmm. and that can feel very oppressive. And you can't sort of, I mean, you you can't you can't um easily um change your appearance so that you don't have they you don't have that effect on them um and sometimes mm-hmm. you even have that effect on them uh sometimes they don't even they're mistaken about um what your heritage even is thomas jackson williams was talking to me about this because he's always mistaken for being arab and his he's african american mm. his background is his mother's European American, his father's African American, um, and in in Paris, some people even got ang- some other Arabs even get angry with him because when he won't speak Arabic with them, and they say, "Oh, come on, stop pretending! Of course you speak Arabic," um, <laughs> which is which is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, wow! But so I think that the. When it's when it's an obligation, when it's kind of women need to do this and can't do that, or people, Nigerians are like X or like Y, and therefore I'm trying to make you slot in and conform, then it's quite oppressive, um, and it can even be oppressive when woke people do that. When it's um, you know when they're trying to celebrate your heritage or second guess how you feel because of your skin color or whatever but it's if it's when it's chosen then it can be like an opportunity and i think it's almost a shame that we can't have in well we can't yet have um in the same way as we have transgenderism we we don't have transracialism because i i think that in a perfect world you would actually be able to change race uh, quote unquote, if you wanted to, if you felt mm-hmm. more affinity with a, a specific culture and mm-hmm. you felt that you would um, flourish more easily there, I think you should be um, permitted to swap. Um, and I think in Ian Banks's mm-hmm. Ian M. Banks's culture novels, that is a possibility. You can change race, um, but we of course mm-hmm. can't. Well, maybe we're not far from it. You know, I mean, people have made the argument uh and people continue to um you know i remember growing up uh and i don't know maybe a chat show would be on and my mum would be watching it and maybe i think it was something like 
I don't know, it was one of the American ones where, you know, they have some really eccentric guests. And I think it might have been Ricky Lake, actually. And I remember there were people, there were black people who came on who felt like they uh, were white. And there were white people came on who felt like they were black. And so, yeah, I do think there, you know, it's uncomfortable for people to acknowledge. Um, people don't want to acknowledge it, it seems. But there are many people, and I don't think they necessarily do so with any means to be offensive, who do feel an affinity uh, for a race or culture uh, mm. that they haven't been born into. And I think it's a really interesting uh, thing to think about, you know, as to, you know, whether whether they should be uh, permitted to to uh, take on that identity, as it were, if they want to. And if not, why should they not be able to? Um, I don't think it's as clear cut as no, it's offensive. We can't do that. Um, I, I think it's a. Uh, I think it's a little more broader than that. Um, and I think we, we may not be far from it is what I'm saying, Iona. So mm. I think we're on our way there. It seems crazy to me that you can't at least choose your skin color. I think, yeah. uh, you can't take a little pill and just increase or decrease your melanin levels. I, I think that's, 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 that seems bonkers. Mm-hmm. That seems like an easy problem to solve. And then you could yeah. just, um, uh, you know, you could accessorize with what you were wearing. You could style it. Um, or you could just decide you feel, I mean, you could just choose it in the same way as you choose um, an eyeshadow. I think that would be mm-hmm. ideal. But I do think mm. that there is a there's a sense in which non-chosen things, things that cannot be avoided, feel often feel more meaningful. And I think this might be at part of the heart of the gender critical, the whole... Um, controversial debate about um, trans, it's especially about trans women, is that people clearly feel, um, people who are on the gender critical side of the debate, not all of them, this isn't the reason why, this isn't for everyone the reason why they are gender critical, but many people on that side of the debate seem to feel that their identity as women is threatened by the existence of trans people and the reason it's threatened or one of the reasons it's threatened, I think for some, and which is rarely mentioned, is that it's not meaningful unless it's not, unless it's something that you can't choose. Um, and I noticed this in, in, um, in Parsi culture, this is very strong. Also, we have a a complete taboo against, um, uh, well, you cannot convert to Zoroastrianism. So you cannot Mm -hmm. become a Parsi. You are only a Parsi if your father was Parsi. It's it's absolutely um, patrilineal, hereditary in a uh, patrilineal sense. And so you can't you you can't become Parsi and you can't convert to Zoroastrianism. If you marry a Parsi, or if you are the adopted child or the stepchild, um, and uh, uh, that I think is a very extremely heartless and very wrong way of going about things. But I also have some sympathy with it because 
people feel that I think they will notice um, just how, if we think of identities as malleable um, and potentially chosen and therefore potentially potentially alterable, then they feel less meaningful to people. They feel less sort Mm -hmm. of deeply intrinsic. And people really, most people aren't Buddhists. They really want that sense of deeply intrinsic belonging. That's probably why I I have this reluctance to wear Western clothes. Um, It's this need Mm -hmm. to cling on to. And I know that it's, in one sense, it's completely imaginary. It's totally imaginary, but it feels like a lifeline through the amorphousness that is being. Um, when I'm, I mean, when I'm listening to Sam Harris's meditation um, app, um, I've been doing his meditations every morning, and one thing he constantly says is you don't exist. You're just a space in which thoughts and sensations are arising. And that gives me, I think that is supposed to be, I don't know, comforting is the wrong word, but empowering, I guess. But I find it, it makes me feel rather agoraphobic. Um, It gives me this horrible sense of vertigo. And I think that that might be why people are People are very angry at transracial, quote unquote, types like um, um, Sean King and Rachel Dolezal. Yes. And I think that that might also be fueling some of people's rage about cultural appropriation, which seems like a bizarre thing to be angry about. Um, And I don't share that. You know, anybody else can also wear Kurta as far as I'm concerned. I'm with you there. Um, But... I think that, and that might also be fueling the whole trans debate, which is this just fear that if something can be chosen, it's not deeply, it's not as meaningful. Mm. Um, you know, the the gay rights debate is also all, all framed around this born, the, the Lady Gaga song, it's you were born that way. Mm. Um, and which I've always felt, found very problematic because what if one day you can choose? Mm. You should still have a right to choose that. It should still be a perfectly valid choice. Mm. But if it's if it's just chosen, you know, the idea that it's, for example, being a gay is a lifestyle or a phase is kind of taken as an insult. Mm-hmm. But I think, well, why is that an insult? It's interesting because there's nothing wrong with it as a lifestyle and there would be Mm. nothing wrong with it as a face. Um, Mm. And I think maybe it's about this sensation that the thing that isn't chosen feels more real. Mm. Yes, yes. I think think you're really right there. I think that's a a really profound way to, to... consider these things um and yes you are right which is potentially why you know part of the um the tension in the uh, uh, the mainstream sort of uh, trans discourse is you know this idea of being uh, you know this idea that trans women uh, are not women this is what you know some people feel let's say that on the gender critical side and i think 
what trans people and you know and for some people that's a perfectly reasonable statement some people feel like well yeah there are differences and what it seems to be the contentious part maybe for trans people who do believe there is no difference is what i think what they're hear- hearing is you are less than you know um it seems yeah it seems that if you are not let's say a a biological woman then we're saying that um you yeah, you're less of a woman or you're less, you're less worthy potentially. Um, and I think there is very much a, um, you know, cause I've spoken about, you know, this idea of potentially being transracial with friends and, and how they would feel about that and, and what their issues are with that. And most people have very many issues with it and, and they will say, well, you know, well, it's not just a, um, it's not just, it's not just a, a complexion, you know, there's a suffering that comes with being um, black, let's say. Um, and that's not necessarily true for everybody. You know, we can't say that like being black is inherently suffering. You know, some people feel like being black is not uh, is not an, a disadvantage, but an advantage, you know, or its own privilege, you know? And so it's, ah, I think you're, yeah, you're very right to say that, um, you know, if, if, if it's something that we can change, you know, or choose, then it feels less real because a lot of people ground maybe who they are in their immutable characteristics. And that's not something I do very often, which is why it's not, it's not so threatening to me. You know, if people decide that they uh, want to be black, let's say, and they are Japanese, I don't feel threatened by that. And if people who are black decide that they want to be Japanese, uh, yeah, again, I don't feel threatened by that. But maybe some of the threat that people feel also comes from this fear that if we can all choose, then maybe no one will choose to be a woman or maybe no one will choose to be black, you know, or maybe no one will choose to be white. And, and I guess that's that's scary for many people. Mm, it is. I, um, I, it does feel like it's a kind of it's a kind of tribute that you're paying um i for some people it seems to be a kind of tribute that they're paying to their ancestors i mean in a very very loose sense because when if we're talking about feminists for example obviously everybody has an equal number of male and female ancestors unless um unless some someone walking among us is a is a disguised alien from another planet which seems quite likely if you're on Twitter as much as I am. Um, oh, yes. But it's it, in a kind of loose sense, it's like these other people suffer for this identity, and therefore I'm going to kind of proudly bear this identity as a tribute to them. Um, it's, um, I mean, whenever I encounter anybody who is a, um, a white nationalist on, on, I only encounter such people on Twitter, but if I encounter people like that, then the first thing I tell them is that, um, I, I, I was actually born in Britain and I usually leave out that part, but I left for Pakistan as very young, as a babe in arms. And I grew up in Pakistan and returned in, um, in the late seventies to the UK. Um, so I always tell them, I came to the UK from Pakistan in the 70s is pretty much my the first and my father was Pakistani. It's pretty much the first thing I say to them. Um and it's like I'm not going to let you 
get away with this. I'm going to put myself out here as the kind of target. And it's like being a sort of moral human shield for other people. Because you not, might not recognize I don't look particularly Indian, but other people who have browner skin are going to feel the brunt of your prejudice. So I'm going to like volunteer as tribute. I don't know if I'm making any sense here, but... Yes, I, I think you are. I think, yeah, you're saying essentially that when you encounter a, a white nationalist, you um, you want to let them know of, of your heritage so that they... Um, they don't feel like, ah, oh, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe fill in the gaps for me. Maybe. Um... Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking aloud here. Um, mm. These are the first time moments I've had this thought, so maybe mm, very okay. inchoate. But I think that that might be part of this, um, because, for example, no one seems to be worried about trans men. Um, I mean, a lot of gender critical. Feminists are concerned about young women um, who um, are maybe lesbians or have autism or something. They're worried that many young women are pressurized into transitioning um, and that they are too young to make an informed decision and that therefore there is an anti-feminist element to that. Um, but I don't hear any men saying that they are that they feel upset or threatened by the idea of women who have transitioned. Um, I only ever hear of feminists saying they feel threatened by um, trans women. They don't usually say threatened, but they they feel like it is um, it's liable to. Um, it's it's liable to damage the kind of authenticity of their cause, of their experience, of their history. So it does seem like people are chiefly upset by people who are who are kind of appropriating, as it were, identities that they think are oppressed identities. And I hear this with cultural appropriation too. People don't say. Um, I don't want you to wear a sari because saris are really beautiful and I don't think you're worthy of wearing of wearing a sari. You're not worthy of being one of us. Um, what they will say is, when I was growing up, I, uh, or typically what I will hear, some people do say that, but typically what I hear is, when I was growing up, I was mocked for wearing a sari and I was told I look, uh, I was told that I smelt of curry or people will say white people shouldn't have um, cornrows, for example, because um, I've been told, I or many black people are, are told they can't wear cornrows because it looks unprofessional, um, or they're mocked for their hair, or strangers come up and touch their hair. Or, um, and so it seems to be you can only wear this badge if you've also experienced the oppression or if you're kind of standing in solidarity with blood relatives and ancestors who have also experienced the oppression. It's really weird. Mm. Yes, we, we seem to attach, I mean, or we seem to have made our identities synonymous with suffering. And the only way that one can have access, yeah, as you're saying, to that 
culture or that identity is if they've suffered also, uh, which is why people seem to be quite um, threatened or at least annoyed by minorities who don't believe that they are oppressed in any way uh, because we've attached oppression to what it means to be inherently black, uh, which I think is very troubling. You know, I think it's very troubling if, if that's the first and foremost way that you perceive your identity because you are teaching this and you're saying this to young people who might already, you know, I, I think it's very, we feel that people are disadvantaged because of their gender, their race, and we keep telling them that to be their gender or race or class is to suffer. I think we are telling people who may already feel quite hopeless or despairing um we're we're sort of we're sort of validating um yeah a hopelessness um and i i think that's uh dangerous i personally don't attach being black to suffering you know um i see every part of my identity including my sexuality which is not straight and i say not straight because rather than lesbian, gay, bisexual, pansexual, because I'm not sure why, or queer even, none of those words seem to fit or feel quite accurate. Maybe they will at some point. And if someone was to call me a lesbian, you know, sometimes I do say to people that I am lesbian or gay, I don't have, you know, because I predominantly uh, date women. Um, But it it doesn't also feel quite true. You know, because I'm, I'm I'm aware that, you know, I don't know, I'm just attracted to, uh, I don't know, maybe it's um, an energy more than it is, or a, a certain kind of, a certain type of sensuality is what I'm attracted to more than a, a sex or a gender. However, I just find that this sensuality is often in women. Uh, and so that has led my, or that's, yeah, that's led my romantic choices. Um, but yeah, it's, I feel all of those things, you know, for me, as I was saying, sorry, I got got caught up for a second. No problem. Um, yeah, my, my, my race, uh, my sex and my sexuality, I, I feel very much are advantages for me. You know, there are ways to perceive the world that can be different sometimes, you know, and sometimes I have a lot of people, you know, a lot in common. My, the, my, my perceptions have a lot of common with people who are not like me, of course. Um, but yeah, I perceive them to be advantages. So that's why I'm quite, I'm quite okay with anybody um, also wanting to get in on this advantage. Um, it's quite flattering to me. You know, if I see someone white who wants to have locks and for one I don't see locks as a predominantly black thing like you know dreadlocks I don't see it that way um or someone who wants to get cornrows I think yeah they're beautiful why would you why would you not want to you know it's it's flattering mm. to me mm. yeah it's really interesting I'm I think that I wonder how much this has to do with a sort of skin in the game intuition um I think it's one of the reasons why um, that mixed race people seem to be seem to trouble a lot of people at the moment in the kind of woke thing, and that's because um, being mixed race gives you options, and that makes people feel like mm-hmm. you're able to escape, and that's kind of not fair. Yes, yes, 
Um, you know, but then it's often not true a lot of the time. I mean, I think mixed race, let's say when I think about a lot of uh, people who are mixed white and black, you know, because it's a, it's a conversation that comes up, you know, people are often debating, you know, whether they're really black or re- whether they face as much oppression or suffering as someone who is, is black on both sides. Um, and, I don't know. I think there is, and not to say that again, that someone's mixed racialness should be defined by hardship, but there is, you know, being mixed race, I believe has its own set of um, complications, Mm -hmm. you know, that can, you can liken to someone who is, yeah, black on both sides or Indian on both sides. Um, I, I think people negate this, you know, I think, what happens is, you know, I, I think this point has been made a lot of times is people want to, for whatever reason, suggest that they are suffering more than everybody else, mm, mm. you know. Um, and I don't know if it's helpful. I think what's helpful is to recognize that we all suffer in unique ways, but the suffering is there nonetheless. And it's not constant necessarily, but there are complications um, to every identity. Mm. You know, no idea. I mean, you can be rich, you can be rich and famous, and there's complications within that that lots of people will never experience, you know, and those things, those complications can be hardships. Yes, yes. Um, well, I remember um, I, it's in one of my favorite movies, um, and the name has just suddenly disappeared from my head right this instant. This is what happens mm-hmm. when you get to my age. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. But I I remember that one of the characters comes by. It might actually be in. It might actually be even in Sex in the City. Um, I may be misremembering where mm-hmm. it is, but one of the characters shows up with her girlfriend, and the girlfriend is very wealthy. Um, she's a wealthy, famous model. She's really beautiful, but she's behaves like an incredible bitch all the time. She's obviously in a really terrible mood, and her friends say. You know, why is she in a bad mood? She has, you know, she's a millionaire and she has everything she could possibly wish for and everybody adulates her. And the girlfriend says, she's hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Which I I can empathize with right now (laughs) since I'm also trying to lose weight. Um, But I've, I've never forgotten that. And I think it's part of the thing is we want to be seen unknown and and we use suffering as a way to kind of build connections with each other because it's easier it's really it's easier to be empathetic to somebody who's suffering um, than it is to be empathetic to somebody who's happy because then envy and competition mm. and all those kinds of things come into it um I mean Mm. And is anyone ever like happy all the time? This is what this is maybe what I question. Like, is there anyone who can just maybe describe themselves as just happy overall? I don't know. I always, I always just think that regard. I mean, yeah, we all have suffered, even if we're not suffering maybe presently. So that's why I try to mm. or have mm. compassion for everybody, regardless, because I know that we all suffer, and even to get to a place where you're perpetually happy, maybe you've had to suffer to learn how to get to that point, I think. I don't know. I think, well, my friend Ingrid always says that she is happy. 
Mm. Um, and she once said if there was a women's magazine that was named for her, it would be, I'm good, thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think that um, she could scrape around, of course, and find some things that she's unhappy about or that happened to her in the past that she's unhappy about. But she feels it would it would be scraping. She would yeah, have to like yes. hunt because really she just has a very comfortable life and a lovely husband and son and um, she feels content. Mm, mm. And so I think that um, I think that we are we're not attracted to suffering and we hate people being self-pitying, but we also really want other people to feel compassion for us. And we have a hard time empathizing with people who are happy. Yes, we do. Yeah, so we do. we're fucked. Yes, <laughs> this is it. Um, yeah, it's, um, I just wonder if, ah, I don't know. It's because in many ways, yeah, I have frustration sometimes and things like that, but I would say I'm quite a content person. I don't think I want for very much. Um, and I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, I guess it's just for me, no one's getting out of this thing alive, <laughs> you know, and, and that in itself is, you know, is, is quite sad, you know, and, and, and in that, you know, because that's, you know, as we, as we, as we get older and as we become, as our health deteriorates, as we become less mobile, as we lose people, as, you know, all of those things I, I think are enough for me and, you know, and death is scary. And, 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 and all of those things for me are, and no one, regardless of, you know, your amount of privilege or disadvantage, escapes this. And that seems to me to be solid enough ground to, to, to want to have compassion for everyone. Because no matter how happy someone is, these things are going to be troubling, you know, and hurtful to people. And they're going to affect them. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't, that's enough for me. The fact that, you know, it's maybe quite cheesy, but the fact that we all die for me is enough, mm. is enough to have mm. compassion for everyone. Mm. I, yeah, I think that's, that's so true. Aisha, is there anything that you have been wanting to say that I haven't asked you about or that you feel is important to remind people of? One thing I, I, I often have thought as I, again, I don't know if it's getting older or maturing because they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, but as I'm maturing, potentially, I, I realize that most people, especially engaged in, um, in, in political discourse, think that they are trying to improve the world. You know, whether they are whether they identify with the name social justice or not, whether they're trying to conserve the way that the world is uh, in large parts, everyone thinks that they're contributing to a better world, which is why they are passionate about what they believe and defend it. Um, And I think when we recognise that and we try to think about why they believe that they are fighting for a better world rather than telling them every reason why they're destroying the world. Um, I think this leads to, um, 
to greater or at least more um, comprehensive, less simplistic insights. Um, so I, I think, you know, I don't, I don't know. This isn't necessarily uh, the most succinct way I'd like to put this, but, you know, everybody thinks that they're, you know, fighting for a better world. Um, a lot of the time, at least, you know, people engaged in, in, in politics. Um, and yeah, that, that tells me something, you know, and uh, I think, I think that we should all try to be more compassionate and, and also courageous. You know, I think that we should also, uh, not negate our own capacity for destruction, um, and I think when we're when that's visible to us, again, that also makes us um, more understanding of other people, at the very least. Thank you so much, um, Aisha. I will um, link to some of your writing and um, talks in the show notes, and I encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter, as you are one of the few nomic sages of that platform. Um, and mm-hmm. it has Thank been uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO A. R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. 2 for T is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, Take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.